This is the Marriage Bites Podcast, episode 59, Addiction and Relationships, with Kathy Marcus. Welcome back to the Marriage Bites Podcast. Today, I have an amazing guest that I cannot wait for you to meet. My guest is Kathy Marcus. Kathy is a certified professional life and career coach. She specializes in mindset, personal fulfillment, and addiction recovery. Kathy is the author of a book called Addiction Land, The Raw Details of My Spiritual Awakening. From like every freaking addiction under the sun, Kathy shares her deepest, darkest life experience and extensive education so that you can find freedom, whether you are an addict or affected by the addiction of a loved one. In this interview, she shares a lot of her story and we have a really candid conversation about addiction, what it is and what to do if you are the loved one of somebody who is addicted. So I cannot wait for you to meet her. So without further ado, here's the interview. Hi, Kathy. Hi, Andalyn. I'm so happy to be here with you. I'm so glad to have you here. Will you please introduce yourself? Sure. Um, I'm Kathy Marcus. I am by trade a certified professional uh, life and business coach that specializes in mindset and personal transformation and empowerment. Mm-hmm. So who do you like to work with the most? You know, it's interesting. You know, I gravitate towards people who tend to be different aspects of myself. And I wouldn't have known that. It only was over a certain amount of time that I noticed, oh, that's my younger me. Oh, that's my corporate me. Oh, that's my perfectionist. You know, so I think what ends up showing up is just a lot of different versions of myself. Uh, And this may sound kind of um, interesting, but it's like this opportunity to help people explore themselves. But at the same time, I'm exploring aspects of myself with my clients. So I tend to like to work with people that um, have struggled or are struggling through many of the things that I have struggled through. Mm, That's so interesting. I find too, that when I talk to people, I'm like, oh, that showed up or that has shown up in my relationship. And it's really kind of cool, but also uncanny that like, the people that you end up working with are the ones who really are past versions of yourself. It's fascinating. I mean, you know, I I have that observer mind that I'm always kind of looking at things, observing what's happening and connecting things. And when I noticed that, I thought, isn't this so beautiful how things are orchestrated so that we come together with people and we kind of mirror, we're mirrors for each other, you know? Yeah. And to be able to be that presence for somebody just to take a look at what's within themselves without judgment. Um, and both parties can learn and gain through that partnership. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's one thing I really, really love about coaching is that not only am I witnessing change in other people's lives and being able to like facilitate it yes. in a way, I also am growing myself at the same time. A hundred percent. A hundred percent. I love that part of the career. Yeah, me too. So speaking of struggles. Yes. You had shared with me that you struggled with addiction. Yes. So tell me a little bit about that part of your story. Yes. So I struggled with many different addictions. I called myself a Medusa of addiction. So you get that picture, right? The woman with the snakes, all the different snakes. And that was me when I entered into college. And it's and it's not the me that anybody would have ever guessed I would be or expected me to be. Hmm. In fact, when I was in high school, I was the achiever. I was this straight A kid. 
I was voted most likely to succeed by my peers. So what people saw on the outside was very different than what was happening on the inside. And what was happening on the inside was there was just this huge pressure cooker. I felt like a pressure cooker, pressure to perform, pressure to make other people happy, pressure to achieve or to be something that would be acceptable or lovable, whether it was to my parents or other people. And so uh, by the time I went to college and nobody was really around and I could really just drop the facade and become a mess, I did. (laughs) So, and I didn't realize at the time that I was utilizing different substances or addictions to help me anesthetize the pain and the pressure that I felt inside that as a young person, I had no idea where that came from or what I could do about it. I just felt very ashamed. I didn't want to tell anybody and I was going to just try to figure it out myself. Mm, That sounds really tough. What I have noticed is that a lot of times somebody will be feeling some kind of negative emotion. Yes. And then they'll judge themselves for either their actions or something. And then the self-judgment kind of like sits right on top of that emotion and keeps it stuck. Yes. What they see is I'm a bad person. I'm stupid. I shouldn't have done that. And they're telling themselves all of these things, not really understanding that it's self-judgment or they think that the self-judgment is the problem when it's really what's underneath the self-judgment that is being held in place. That is sometimes even the bigger problem, but they can't even see it through the self-judgment. Yeah. So everything's energy from my perspective. I mean, I'm an energy coach too, right? So emotions, energy, emotion, and perspective is so important. How we see a thing is how the thing is. I mean, our filters affect everything in our lives. And where do those filters come from? So that is the specific type of certification I got when I went to coaching school was to, at first I went through it myself because I was wondering in my life, who is my authentic self? Who am I really? I mean, I got to a stage of my life that I really didn't know if I was being real or where I was pretending or being fake. And I wanted to know the true me. So I went on that quest. I went through this coaching process myself. And when I got to the other side of that, I said, I want to bring that to everybody I can. I want to. And I went and I became certified in that technique. But basically what it is, is helping people to understand the wiring of why do I judge myself? Where was the, how did the critic get created? Where did, you know, because when we are first born and come into the world, we're innocent. We don't have these impressions. We're curious. We're alive. We're vibrant. And then people, places, and things right on our spirit, right? They leave these impressions on us and we're young and we don't know how to process these events. So with a child's mind, we process something like, well, if that person is mad at me, I must have done something wrong. I'm bad, you know? And so I started to learn about that wiring and and I love helping other people understand why do I speak to myself this way? Why do I think this way? Where did this come from? Why do I dislike myself so much? I mean, I was just making a video this morning, Andalyn, that I think the most pervasive mental health issue is self-hatred. Mm-hmm. We, we don't even talk about that. We talk about bipolar and all, depression. And, but what's really underneath that is the relationship with oneself. And when it's not a loving relationship, when it's a relationship of abandonment and rejection, addictions flourish. 
Mm, okay. So did you experience something really hard in your childhood? Was this like a particularly what you might call bad childhood? I mean, it's always relevant, right? And I think, yeah. again, it's for each person, it doesn't even have to be as bad as somebody else. Like I like to tell people this because people don't even have shame. Well, my story isn't that bad. So I shouldn't feel this way. Yeah. So I like to say that, you know, it's you're a young person going through a moment where it's tough for you to digest what just happened to you and then how you process it and how you feel about yourself can be very negative and stay with you forever. Mm -hmm. For me, it was an emotionally traumatic situation. I was very close with my father. I was a daddy's girl. And then I ended up, you know, my first boyfriend and I've got the obsessive type of personality. So I was like, all I wanted to do was be with my boyfriend 24 seven and who knows exactly what was going on in my dad's mind, what his fears or concerns or worries were. Part of it even was his self-centeredness that he didn't like that I wasn't giving him the attention anymore. And I was like, you know, I was never home. But what happened is he stopped giving me attention. He stopped communicating with me. He stopped hugging me. I would come into the house and I used to get a hug or a kiss from my dad. And he would like turn his face to me where I would end up kissing his ear. You know, he was clearly rejecting me. He was clearly punishing me. So I inter and, you know, and I was a great kid. I was straight A's and friendly and helped around the house. I mean, I look back and I'm like, I would have wanted me as a child, mm -hmm. but that's when the perfectionist in me was born was in that moment. Cause I was like, if I'm not good enough right now, what do I need to be to avoid ever feeling this awful again? And I decided in that moment that I was unlovable. I think I even thought I was disgusting, like repulsive, because the way my dad was treating me was almost like, you know, he was like, he turning away from me, you know? So again, that was my mind. That was my sensitivity. Not everybody may be as sensitive as I was, but that's where it started for me. Hmm, that's really interesting that you can even pinpoint like the moment, the time that kind of set everything in motion. Yeah, you know, again, this is what I specifically uh, do now for a living is I literally help people create their timelines of events, the shaping events, the positive shaping events and the negative shaping events, because these are the these are the experiences that create the neural pathways in the brain. And we're operating off of those neural pathways. But that's not who we really are. Like you were talking about how, you know, the judgment is over the emotion what I like to say is the perceptions are over the reality of who you are. Mm, yeah. So when you can break through these perceptions and these filters and drop into your authentic self, it's a much different experience than you have when you're living with the filters. Mm, absolutely. And I think we all have filters. I think those are put in place even sometimes as like is very young children that yes. are there because we think it protects us. For example, like I need to be a part of the family group. So I need to be like the rest of the family where 100%. as a person, if a person feels like I'm different from these people, well, I need to be the same so that I can be included. I mean, I remember Andalyn that just even gossip, you know, there was this family habit of like, let's talk about uncle Joe and everybody would get together and talk about uncle Joe instead of talking about themselves. But in order to fit into the family, you had to participate in that activity of talking about somebody else. Like that was the bonding that it was very dysfunctional in my house. That's how they bonded in my house. 
you know? And then when I started to want to just keep the focus on myself and not participate in that, it didn't go over so well. I mean, I, I ended up staying with that anyways, because it went well for me, but it definitely created some issues in the family system. Mm, That's really interesting. So how long would you say your period of addiction lasted? So you said it started kind of in college. How long did those, was that? Well, so I love, I love that question too, because what I believe is that there's not a person on the planet. Well, maybe there's a couple of people that aren't addicted, but I think everybody's addicted. Hmm. And sometimes people are just addicted to thinking. It's a huge addiction. There's another way to live without being up in your head, thinking about things all the time. And how many people know that? How many people have that experience? But I've been the person who had the monkey mind. And now I'm the person who doesn't have the monkey mind. And I never thought I would be able to shut my brain up. I remember I read something about, you know, the thoughts and I was reading a spiritual book and I'm like, I'm never going to be able to quiet this mind. It's never going to happen. And I live that reality now where it happens often. So there's all different types of addictions, but what, what, what you're really asking about is probably like the more obvious addictions, the drug addiction, cigarette addiction, the food addiction. Mm-hmm. I, as I mentioned, kind of exploded and went into so many different addictions But it started for me, I think when I was about 16 years old and I was started to date this boy and my dad started to reject me, that's when I started to have the food addiction. I noticed that, you know, I would, I would feel awful and then I would start binging on things to kind of try to take away that feeling of insecurity that was inside of me. That's when it began. And then, okay, first I want to ask you, what is the difference between an addiction and a habit? Yes. So, you know, in my mind, I would say, and again, there's healthy habits and there's not so healthy habits, right? Mm -hmm. But I think addiction is when you cross this line that you can't stop once you've started. Mm -hmm. It turns into addiction, like you've lost control and a habit might be you're doing it for a while and it's not positive, but you're able to stop and somehow you stop at some point with addiction. And I never intended to become addicted. I was just literally doing things that were protecting me from feeling so awful, from feeling the feelings in my body. And I was just looking for ways to anesthetize. But at some point, I became so accustomed to that habit of using that coping style to help me that I couldn't stop. So I think that's when you cross the line and something becomes an addiction. Mm. It's something that you can't stop that is interrupting your ordinary uh, living processes, the way that you would be in the world naturally. Mm, Okay. So I've been thinking about the word addiction and I think that some people feel like, well, that's an addiction, therefore I can't stop. So almost like the label of addiction contributes to the inability to stop doing that thing. What has your experience been about that? I love hearing things like that, like different things like that, but I could see how the word addiction would give somebody the impression, you know, I'm not going to be able to get out of this, you know, like that's a heavy word addiction. So I understand what you're saying. Mm -hmm. Um, I've just learned over time that I'm either a victim or I'm not a victim. And when I say that, you know, I learned that I can either be in an experience and be like, why is this happening to me? And feel like there's nothing I can do in that situation and be overwhelmed by a situation. Or I can choose to look at a situation and say, how does this serve me? What can I learn through this situation? 
Um, so I think shifting from a place of this is so awful and I shouldn't be this way and it's terrible that I use these these different things and the shame, shaming myself and judging myself. Why do I smoke? Why do I binge and purge? You know, I'm so awful. When I came into recovery, I shifted into this position of starting to look at, you know, what happened and how did it affect me? And then what was my choice? What did I choose in that moment when I was having those overwhelming feelings of insecurity or powerlessness or, you know, just disturbance? I would choose to go pick up food. I noticed that I would choose to pick up food or I would choose to pick up a cigarette or I, there's a million other addictions that I had. Mm-hmm. And what other choices could I have? What are some of the other choices? I mean, as a child, I didn't even know of the other choices. That was the issue. I wasn't presented with other choices. I wasn't, nobody modeled other choices for me. The choices that were modeled was picking something up. My dad would pick up a drink. My mom would smoke a cigarette or she would turn to food. I wasn't witnessing communication. I wasn't witnessing meditation. I wasn't witnessing journaling. I mean, so when I came into recovery and started to get introduced to other people who were making other choices, go to a meeting, share how you're feeling with a sponsor, get on your knees and pray. I mean, this was like, oh, you can do other, feel your feelings. Really? Mm -hmm. That was like amazing to me. So I think, you know, just being able to use our awareness to notice what happens that creates that choice. And do we have other choices in that moment? And what would those choices be? That's when you start to get into the empowerment and out of, Mm -hmm. uh, I have no control. And what was that turning point for you? How did you go from, this is what was modeled. This is what I know to, oh, there's more out, like there's other options too. What was that moment? The truth, the truth is, Andalyn, that I, I was drinking and using drugs one night and I got to the point of like overdose. Like I was so sick and I was terrified. This is in my book. I wrote a book called Addiction Land, which the subtitle is the raw details of my spiritual awakening from like every freaking addiction under the sun. And it's on Amazon. And the beginning of the book starts with this overdose. So here I am having this massive overdose and in my head, and I share this in the book, I'm like, what is a nice girl like me doing in the middle of this scene? How did I get here? Like, what is going on? But I had to get help. I was forced to, I thought I was going to die. So a friend of mine called 911. They came and picked me up and took me to the hospital. They called my mother. Now there was like, you know, people knew what was going on. And in that moment, I just felt like I don't have a choice but to get help because if I continue the way that I've been continuing, I may not live. Mm -hmm. So the reality is it wasn't like I was like, oh, let me just go find some help for myself. I think I was like most people who are so scared of being judged. They're going to keep trying to do it themselves, trying to do it themselves. And they don't realize that once it's an addiction, you can't do it on your own. You can't. Mm -hmm. You must find a power greater than yourself that in the beginning just might be a therapist, a doctor, a group. It doesn't have to be God. A lot of people are very against that concept, but just something, some, something outside of yourself that can lend insight and information and tools that you can't access on your own clearly, because if you could, you would find your way out of the problem. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Like if you already knew the answer, you would have already done the thing. 
Well, of course. Yeah. Right. Yeah. It's so frustrating when you're in the middle of it and like, but you know, the biggest thing that I like to share with people who are suffering from addiction really does come from, I didn't understand that dynamic that was happening inside of me. Now I, I, and I'm a big time meditator. I mean, I have a lot of different experiences of how life can be inside of me now to compare and contrast. And when I was younger, I did not know why I was feeling what I was feeling. I didn't know how to be with those feelings. And I was just doing what I could to get rid of those feelings so I could function. Mm -hmm. That's what was going on. Now that I'm older, what I realized, which is we are all so much more similar than we are different. Human beings are very similar. There's certain equations. You just plug in different stories, but the dynamics are the same is that we have these experiences generally, and you, you know, this zero to seven is like a highly impressionable time in our lives. Those things that happen really get wired into the brain to protect us, you know? So we have these negative experiences with a teacher. I have one client, you know, his teacher told him how ugly he was and made him stand against a wall. Okay. He had to face a wall and she said something. And to this day, he has trouble getting on a Zoom. He has to turn the camera away because he's carrying such shame about being ugly. And he's not an, he's a nice looking man mm. carrying this around all of these years because of something that a teacher said and he got it wired into his brain. I don't ever want to be seen again because I don't ever want to feel that pain again that I felt that humiliation that she put me through. So everybody is walking around with stored traumas from different experiences. Some are extreme traumas, some are not so extreme. But this is what I would want your listeners to know is that there's nothing wrong with you. You just don't know how to process what happened to you. And if you could get some help from Angeline or different coaches, there's people who are trained to help you become aware of how did this get lodged, seared into my brain and how can it be released so that I can fall back into my peace and my love and live a different kind of life, you know, that is absolutely possible for anybody to find freedom. Yeah, I absolutely agree with that. So you talked a little bit earlier about the relationship with yourself yeah. and how the self-judgment and all of that, we talked a little bit about that. Do you feel like the relationship with yourself was reflected back to you? through your relationships with other people? Absolutely. I mean, and I've just learned about the mirrors in the last couple of years, Andalyn, which I didn't really understand that, but I have this spiritual guide in my life. Something was going on with my cousin and and I was like, I can't believe she acted this way. You know, I mean, this is this is in the past year that I had this situation. And she said something to me about there really is no other. And I was like, what does that even mean? What does that even mean? Now, I'm a spiritual coach. And, you know, I can go too deep for people at times, but there's one energy in the universe and everything's connected through it. And so this is that concept with the mirrors is like, you're going to resonate with what is something that's inside of you. There's an energy that's connecting you to somebody else. And, he, you know, and, and I had to like really get quiet and go internal on how is she and me, you know, but ultimately what I got to is she was being very attacking towards me very angry and attacking. And I kind of felt like, how is she seeing what she's seeing in me? That's, that's not how I see myself. And realized that she was my, like my internal attacker. 
it wasn't that I behaved like she did in the world. It was that I behaved towards myself. Like she was behaving towards me within me. Mm. And it was like, wow, what a revelation. So, you know, um, I just think it's really interesting how we, you know, and, and the key too with all of that is to learn how to embrace the humanity and all of us that all of us can be um, unattractive at times. All of us can be, you know, insecure at times or angry at times. We were designed with all of these different emotions. The energy that moves through us was designed by our creator. We didn't design it for ourselves. So there's obviously nothing wrong with it, but what do we do with that energy when we feel it is the difference between somebody who ends up potentially becoming addicted and somebody who can live in a more healthy way. Yeah, I really like that idea. So in a in a marriage relationship, I feel like this is particularly enhanced or enlarged that huh. your spouse, especially out of all the people in the world, is going to be the one to reflect back to you your sense of self-worth. Yes. And tell me how addiction plays a part in that. If someone is addicted to a substance, for example, um, like, for example, if it's like alcohol and so you're you get your mind altered, you know, you're not able to, you know, think normally when you're on a substance. So when it's that kind of problem, how does one deal with that in a relationship? So first of all, as you're saying that my mind is just kind of sorting things. And what came up for me was it took me a long time to realize that even though one person might be overtly using something addicted to something, Usually water seeks its own level. There's connection there, but it's often hard for the other person to see, well, I don't do that. I'm, well, I don't have that problem. A lot of times the underlying connector is emotional unavailability. Hmm. So what I have found is this person's not emotionally available, but neither is this person hmm. that that's usually the connector and they don't know that they're not available to themselves. Therefore they're not available to other people. And as they get more connected to themselves, you know, then potentially that situation may not be tenable for them anymore. But but when they're not really connected to themselves and their feelings, sometimes they will stay in a situation that mm. they can't understand what am I doing here? You know, so both individuals really have an opportunity to get more connected to themselves or not. Okay. And the other thing that came to me that I want to share with you, not specifically with addiction, but let's see how it may actually be connected, is that most people don't realize that the traumas from their childhood, they carry that luggage into the marriage. Mm -hmm. So it's not seen, but pretend we got these suitcases filled with trauma and it's brought into the house where they now were married. Okay. And in the beginning, everything's fireworks and great, and we love each other, and our hearts are wide open. And then the person does something that reminds us of the person who did that thing to us when we were young, and we're not even aware of this. Mm -hmm. And now they become the enemy. I mean, this is why so many couples end up hating each other and disliking each other. And, you know, why did I end up with this person? They don't realize that they have brought somebody into their life that is going to help them uncover stuff that's been stored inside of them that potentially could be released. I mean, this to me is the true definition of soulmates. It's not that we come together and we have fireworks forever. It's that we come together and our lives become better because we're both willing to see what's being activated in ourselves 
by each other. And we're both willing to do our own work on what's being activated and not hold the other person accountable for our own happiness, mm -hmm. our own peace. As I say that though, Andalyn, I want you to know that, oh my gosh, for 15 years, I wanted my husband to change. I mean, I have been stuck in this. I couldn't see it. I just keep th kept thinking if he does this different or handles this different, then I'll feel different. If he relates to my child different, then, you know, I'll feel different. It's only been in the last couple of years, you know, I'm 55 now. I am a spiritual coach. I've read every spiritual book under the sun. It's taken me this long to really finally connect with, oh, I'm accountable for my own emotions. I'm accountable for everything that goes on inside of me. He's a gift pointing me to something inside of me that I'm not reconciled with. And I have this opportunity to make peace with it within myself and love myself and even love those circumstances. That's a part of it. When we're hating what happened to us, we're in opposition to it. We can't make peace with it. But when we look at the experience, like, okay, that was really an awful experience I went through. I mean, I would never wish upon somebody that there's terrible things that have happened to my clients. And this is kind of a difficult conversation sometimes because I'm, I'm always having to explain, look, I'm not saying that that was the right thing for somebody to do to you. But what I'm saying is it happened. And if it happened from a larger perspective, it can serve a purpose in your life. And if we look for the purpose that it can serve for the good for you, for other people in your life, um, then you can make peace with it. Mm -hmm. You know, So yeah, that's where those choices and options come in. Yeah, I want to point out too, it's not always a thing another person did. So we had an experience when my oldest was seven, he was diagnosed with type one diabetes. And that wasn't anything that somebody did. Right. But a lot of parents have so much anguish about it because they aren't able to see like, what is the gift in this? Yeah. And I don't know why this happened for me differently than a lot of parents, but from even like pretty early on, I was able to say, cause I don't, people don't really, if, unless you have a personal experience with type one diabetes, you just think, Oh, diabetes, like you can't eat sugar and everything's fine, right. but it's actually a lot harder to balance and to manage than you'd think. Yes. And for some, I don't know why, but even from early on, I was like, okay, this disease is not awesome. It is hard. It's not fun at all. But I was able to see on the flip side, he's he was really quiet and it helped him have a stronger relationship with his teachers because otherwise he totally could have gone under the radar, gotten totally forgotten about. But because of this condition, he had a better relationship with the other adults in his life, the teachers and the other people and stuff. He received more attention. Yeah. Um, the other silver lining is diabetes camp. He loved it so much. He's I think when he went, when he was eight or nine. And um, so he got to be with other people and like develop these relationships and have experiences that none of the other kids got. So I'm like, it sucks, but sometimes you get to eat sugar and the other kids don't like sometimes. You don't. I, I love, I love what you said about the silver lining. I call it silver linings too, like, yeah. because we can only in hindsight kind of look back. Sometimes it takes the hindsight to really see that silver lining. Yeah. But the other thing that I learned because my son got bullied terribly, horribly, like mm -hmm. coming home and screaming. And it was, you know, cause he was in such anguish. And as a mother, I felt so powerless and it was awful. But what I learned from that experience too, was that every family is going through things. Like I was just so in, look how it's, 
affecting our family or my child and me. And that's one of those equations where I say, okay, it might be diabetes for you. It's bullying for me. There's always something. I mean, I have a neighbor who lost her child that was bike riding in the street. This happened this year and a car killed their son. I mean, there can always be so much worse or, you know, but at the end of the day, that's not even what's relevant. What's relevant is that we go through these circumstances. Life can be extremely hard and challenging and difficult and painful. And the difference between suffering, suffering, which is like the prolongation of all of that is how we process and also how we can express ourselves. Do we have the ability to share? I mean, I love groups, the diabetes camp, the 12 step group that I attend. I mean, I feel like groups community is so important in recovering from any dynamic or hardship because you connect with other people who know your feelings, who know your experience, who understand you. And a lot of times we're just wanting to be understood. We're not wanting to be fixed, healed, or changed. We're just wanting somebody else to go, I get you. And that makes perfect sense, what you're feeling and experiencing. That in itself can be tremendously healing. Absolutely. So when we were talking about couples, you have the quote unquote addicted spouse, and then you have not addicted spouse. Or the using spouse, using substances and the non-using substances spouse. Okay. Yeah. So when that's such a challenge for the spouse who is not using. Yes. What would you say to them in order to like, how do they deal with the situation with the relationship? Great question. So if they're open to it, there are great 12-step programs for somebody who is dealing with somebody else's addiction, whether it's the spouse, the child, the father, So I always highly recommend free 12-step fellowships like CODA, Codependence Anonymous, or Naranon is for drug-related groups, people who are affected by people who are using drugs, or Al-Anon is for people with the alcohol. But there are these 12-step fellowships where you can attend online or in person. You could shut off your, you don't even have to show your face. Because people, a lot of times, the stigma, the shame, you know, in the beginning, totally get it. So you turn off your camera online Zoom and just listen and hear what's going on with other people who are going through exactly what you're going through, which to me is really the first step to start taking down some of that shame. When you think it's just you, the shame is through the roof and you don't want to talk to anybody. Mm-hmm. But as, start, as soon as you start to realize, oh, there's a lot of people that have this exact same situation going on, the shame starts coming down and people become more willing to open up and share what's happening with them, which is really the way to recover from anything. Um, The other thing that I'm a huge fan of is bibliotherapy. So finding books that are about the topic. So, you know, books written by somebody who has lived with somebody who's using, I mean, one of my favorite books in this genre is called uh, Codependence No More by Be- Melody Beattie. And it's a book totally about people who are addicted to other people. There, That's an addiction. You get addicted and focused on this other person. And what can I do to change this person, make this person different? It's an addiction. They don't know how to not focus on the other person and put the focus on themselves. So that's the addiction addiction that they don't see. They may be addicted to the substance, but I'm addicted to them. I'm addicted to controlling, fixing them. Mm. So now there's this ability to how do I go within and figure out where's this need to control coming from? 
How am I feeling out of control in my life? Where does that come from? And how can I heal that within myself? The more we attend to those feelings of powerlessness and out of controlness and chaos within ourselves with our own love and acceptance, the addictions fall away. Mm. Organically, naturally, there is a direct correlation between, you know, how am I perceiving myself and my feelings and my choices? Am I judging whipping stick towards myself? How dare you? How dare you? Or I say now with a feather, just kind of with a feather of noticing what's there and what what can I do differently, see differently. And of course, I work with um, as a recovery advocate as well with people just to help them learn about the dynamics that are at, at play and make new choices. But that's what I would say initially is, you know, getting with groups, uh, online resources where you can read about and identify with other people in the same situation and choices that they've made or working with a professional who understands addiction and recovery. I would say also has long-term, if they personally have been through recovery. I mean, when I wrote my book, I had over two decades of freedom. I find that a lot of books that are on the market, when you get to the end of the story, the person has maybe a year of recovery. So I think it's important also to look at, you know, the information you're getting. Is this by somebody who has tested what they're presenting to you over time and it continues to work successfully? Mm, That's really interesting. I think one thing that has really helped me to like, to understand how this comes together is that when I, when you're young, you see things in either or a lot. So either you're a good person or you're a bad person. And even I can go back and look in my childhood and say, oh, like the parents who will point to that person and say, well, you don't want to be like that person. They don't exactly say that's a bad person necessarily. Like, oh, you want to be like that person. You want to be like that person. Or just like even really subtle messages that we pick up throughout our growing up years. And this idea, perfectionism is basically like, I have to be only good and I can't be bad at all. Otherwise I'm all bad. And so we kind of go from like, like, I think in your story, what I heard was I was like really, really good. And then I couldn't hold it anymore. And then I went clear over to the other side where I was like using all kinds of substances and I was not myself. You weren't yourself when you were trying to be more than like better than you could like do more. Pretending. Yeah. You weren't yourself when you were using all those things and like totally letting all of that go. And I think for me, the light bulb moment was that like, I am good and I am bad. And really to be able to take in both of those ideas and say, these two things can coexist. I can good sometimes and I'm not so good. Sometimes I yell at my kids or I, you know, overindulge. And I would even reframe that, Andalyn. I've learned to reframe that even because I don't even say good or bad anymore. I say human. I am human. Yeah. And human encompasses a wide variety of choices and thoughts and feelings and behaviors. So I don't even do the good bad anymore mm-hmm. because I don't even believe that I'm, I'm awake. That was, that was causing me a problem too. Right. Because it's, Judgment thing, because with those words is judgment. Mm -hmm. And so I was like, how can I move away from judgment entirely? How about just welcome to the human race? Welcome to humanity. I mean, I was just talking about this in a video the other day, too, about, you know, spiritual. Like, you know, I mean, I know that I was seeking spirituality when I started investigating spirituality 
because I wanted to get out of the pain of feeling the way that I felt about myself. So maybe the more I meditate, the more I pray, the more I do good deeds, the more I had charitable donations, I'll be more spiritual. No, Mm -hmm. no, that was just another form of the perfectionism. Right. What I finally had to embrace is just embracing myself as I am, allowing myself to express completely human. So, So where I was holding myself back is I wasn't willing to be vulnerable in front of other people. I wasn't willing to show other people that I could be a maniac at times. I wasn't willing to show people that I could be terrified. I I was hiding and pretending that I wasn't feeling, because I think this is where most of the pretending is. We don't want people to know how we're really feeling, how we're really thinking about certain things. That's the stuff that really gets masked. Mm -hmm. And then when it's held in, can turn into acting out in a number of ways, because it's, it's very hard to pretend it's exhausting. And I think the (laughs) irony of that is that no, you're not hiding anything from anybody. It's plain as day that you are feeling all those things. Isn't that funny? It it is plain as day. And, and the other irony, interesting aspect is the way we really get what we truly want in this world, which is to be, to feel the love within ourselves is through connection. Mm-hmm. And real connection is found when people are being real. I've always been the most people who have like just put their stuff out there in the world. I just know my, myself. I've always been like, wow, that's like a superpower. How are they doing that? I always found it so attractive and interesting and powerful that they didn't care what other people think. And they were willing to like just expose themselves in that way. Mm-hmm. Um I think it's such a gift. And now I look at it, it really is such a gift. With my clients, so many of them are emerging adults, young people. I have client, I start with the parents and then they're like, can you talk to my kids? Cause they hear about my background with addiction and the kids have vaping or whatever is going on. And ultimately when I share some of my worst moments, I, and I can do this, I'm not a therapist, I'm a coach. So I, you know, I can reveal certain things. It's the connector. It's actually what assists these younger people in becoming willing to open up and explore and move into their solutions. Because mm-hmm. a lot of young people don't want to work with private therapists because they because they're wanting to hide their stuff, you know, because they feel judged. And because a therapist can't say whether or not they had addiction in their history. I mean, I, I think if it's specifically relevant, maybe they can in a discussion, but that's not the protocol for most therapist is to talk about themselves at all. So I think there's a hidden jewel in us sharing our struggles and our hardships and our insecurities. And, um, and this is the way through the connection, we actually can repair, you know, come together in relationships. Mm -hmm. And that's it for part one of this conversation. Stay tuned because there's so much more in part two. I'll see you next week. And that's a wrap for this episode of the Marriage Bites podcast. If you've enjoyed today's episode, share it with your friend. Do you feel like the fun and adventure you used to have has been crowded out by work, kids, and just life in general? I have put together 24 super fun date night ideas that will have you laughing and connecting in 20 minutes or less. So head over to andalynprice.com to get a whole bunch of easy and free date ideas. You'll be amazed at how a little bit of play 
can have you laughing and connecting in no time. Babysitter not required.